0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
1: Looking for the best sports coverage on the web? Then check out The Dan Patrick Show on Podcast One Sportsnet. Join the sportscaster Monday through Friday as he covers the biggest games all year long with a whole bunch of A-list guests from the world of sports and entertainment. Download new episodes of The Dan Patrick Show every week, only on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. And while this episode was recorded a few days ago, uh, I'm actually in Europe as this is being released. It's still very topical. We, we go through... The most interesting storylines from his perspective of the first portion of the year, both big picture, small picture, on and off the court. And then we also delve into uh, the feature that he is working on on LeBron James Jr. and Bron- and Sierra Canyon and-, and everything else that's going on with Bronny and that really fascinating team. So we spend the last little bit talking about that and LeBron James, of course, all connects and episode runs about an hour and is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's always fun to talk with Ben.
2: Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. Long time no talk, but I always love hopping on here with you. Everything's good?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, I certainly have a different in-person experience now. I mean, that, that's <laughs> I, I don't want to dwell too much on the Warriors, but if, if you asked how I'm doing, that is different that it's not... You know, partially due to the Warriors being the Warriors, but also partially due to my change in responsibilities for the Athletic, which, yes, was negotiated with an understanding of where things might have gone, not to this extreme, but... That it is different to like just not have those eighty-two games kind of penciled in of like okay I'm going to watch that and then you figure everything else out from there. That is fundamentally different.
2: Oh, so you don't think it was convenient that they just transported the Santa Cruz Warriors straight to your backyard? I mean, that's a nice drive down there to the coast, but now you get a, a fresh, firsthand look at all the prospects.
1: Absolutely, yeah, you get to get to see the futures today. I'm, I'm sure that's what <laughs> what Lakeup and Goober were planning on when they built the the gigantic arena in Mission Bay. But we can talk about more pressing NBA matters, and and I like to, at this point in the year, not focus on the the day-to-day goings-on, but more big picture, so thinking from mid-October to now, really what... Are there any big picture takeaways for you? There are a couple for me, um, but I'll let you have an open floor first.
2: Well, I would say, uh, you know, kind of off the court, I think the ratings thing is definitely a big picture issue that we all need to be looking about. I mean, I think that in all the conversations about the ratings, I do think the injuries aspect of it has probably gone under discussed just because it's like the most boring explanation. But when you have Zion, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and the premier ratings draw the Golden State Warriors collapsing, like that's obviously going to be a hit. But I think we're hearing from the NBA league office that like that's not the only deal. You know, the cable uh, subscriber issue is hanging over them. Uh, the idea that they've got to push back on all this load management talk is definitely an issue for them. Uh, you know, kind of coincidentally, this conversation about is there going to be a midseason tournament? How can they make the regular season more exciting? That's really popped up. Uh, And so I do think that starting the season under a cloud, uh, you know, of the China controversy and Zion's injury and just sort of the mismanagement of the television schedule there where they just have all these national TV games kind of empty with the New Orleans Pelicans because he's out. I do think that's a major, you know, kind of a a wet blanket storyline, but certainly a major storyline. Now, on the topic of on the court, you know, pardon the, you know, the LA, uh, you know, focus here, but I think the Lakers are a ridiculous story. I mean, we can't go back uh, to last year without talking about the dysfunction, Magic Johnson. Uh, the trade rumors, uh, you know, the backstabbing accusations and all that. And the Lakers have been, you know, arguably the most reliable team night to night in the league. Kind of out of nowhere, uh, Anthony Davis is playing like a defensive player of the year. LeBron's in the MVP conversation. Their defense is way better than I ever expected. The role players are are fitting in pretty darn seamlessly. We haven't heard a peep about Frank Vogel's job security, which might be the biggest, you know, shock of everything. Uh, given how their job search played out, and they're rolling. And, and I think if they're healthy, and they've, they've been pretty healthy this whole way, they've got that intimidation factor back. You know, these second-tier teams in the Western Conference, or, or even worse teams, uh, you know, they're once again looking at LeBron and Anthony Davis with, you know, that kind of like, oh, crap, look in their eyes, and they're just beating teams mentally, sometimes even before the game starts. So, to me, that has been a major big-picture takeaway. Obviously, the Clippers have been very good, too. The Bucks have been very good. Uh, the, the Raptors have overachieved, maybe the, the Sixers have underachieved slightly, but to me, that's kind of what I see as the big picture stories.
1: Yeah. I'll tackle those, uh, kind of one at a time for me. Th- granted, I'm a CBA, The The biggest question with the ratings, I mean, in the near term, the question is, will that affect things like BRI? Cause if it affects mm-hmm. BRI, then it becomes a material question because then it affects the salary cap. It affects player salaries, everything like that. And it would probably take a few years for that to really happen, but I mean we're getting closer to where that conversation is going to happen with the next set of negotiations and the the, the next CBA. So yeah, I, I think that's it, it's interesting, and and I hope that it spurs a a larger conversation about various different things and. Uh, Ethan Stroudstrauss and I talked about this a few weeks ago, but one of the basic ideas that I think the NBA has had trouble squaring over the last couple of years is the idea of it as an entertainment product. And I think the coaches challenge is an interesting example here, where it it doesn't help the league as an entertainment product. You could say it helps them as a competitive product because it, it you know, it theoretically can get some incorrect calls corrected and theoretically they're going to be important enough ones that a coach wants to use the challenge, but you spend all that time doing the video review. It's not particularly, it's not a particularly fan-friendly process. And I think the league has never really gotten that right. And I, I could make an argument that the NFL hasn't either, that the NFL is so popular it doesn't matter. But I think basketball, especially with the duration of the games as a potential swing factor here, that is one thing that they, they could potentially league-wide and maybe incorporating people who aren't in the league office, think about more aggressively
2: yeah I mean look I, I was willing to give the the coaching challenge a shot you know I understood the thinking behind it. I definitely understood the coach's perspective on why they would want it potentially or at least some of the coaches uh, because not all the coaches are in favor of it but the more that I've seen it play out in person night after night the more it's just a drag you hear the groans from the fans And, you know, I even go back to guys like I think Henry Abbott probably was was one of the first people, you know, 10, 15 years ago, talking about maintaining pace of play, like cutting down on stoppages, late in games, trying to get towards a more soccer feel and flavor. And, you know, frankly, like it really does screw up the the viewing experience. And if we want to keep fans engaged, if part of the problem is over the course of an A2 game season that uh, not every game feels like it necessarily matters, you do need to maximize uh, the entertainment factor of watching the game. I'm almost in favor now of just like a radical solution of like really peeling back all of the replay or at least a lot of the replay, getting rid of the coaches challenge for sure. I think it's unnecessary and too complicated Um, and getting to a situation, maybe even where you're limiting the number of timeouts that can be used in a late game situation so that the players can just play. I'm not sure the game benefits at all from the timeouts. Like, you know, other than, you know, offensive defensive substitutions and the occasional dramatic, dramatic ATO from one of the you know the, the the best coaches out there. I feel like, you know, basically if you've got these interchangeable lineups, a lot of small ball looks, the premier ball handlers are going to have, uh, you know, the possession in their hands, you know, late in the games. I want to see those guys go to work. I don't want to stop and think about it, and watch a commercial comeback, do it again. And so That would be where I'd focus a lot of my attention if I was the NBA League office. I know they've tried to change when the timeouts happen at other points in games to get kind of a smoother and a shorter... Uh, you know, programming block, uh, you know, as they've kind of laid that out in in recent board of governors meetings. But I still think there's just a lot of work to be done. Some of these, you know, the the last five minutes of a fourth quarter can drag on for 45 minutes and and it kills the fans. Uh, And I I definitely think it probably affects TV viewership as well.
1: I would think so. And I mean, you, you have a couple of different moving factors in all of this, but I think another important conversation that needs to happen, and this one is more between the league and fans, is an understanding that refereeing will never be perfect. And this kind of one example for me was the recent one with the Rockets and the Harden miss dunk. Yeah, seems like it was a pretty clearly messed up call. But the idea that, I mean, a, a, a screwed up call, not in the last, like, you know, if it's the last shot of the game, then and it turns a, like a loss to win a win or win to a tie or something like that, that's a different thing. But it is an understanding to me. And maybe this is growing up with baseball where like the conversation about the strike zone is just everywhere for better or for worse is I think there needs to be an understanding that refereeing is really hard. The NBA is, by, is from what I can tell, the hardest league to referee in basketball, maybe in any sport. And like, the NFL sometimes does that with like, oh, there's holding on every play that was an old John Madden hallmark and all that kind of stuff. And I think that while you don't need to say like, oh, it's just just deal with it, the idea that every call can be right, should be right, is a little bit detrimental and I think it's more detrimental not to the people's confidence in the sport but to the entertainment product because if you're looking to see whether it hit this guy's fingernail or it hit that guy's fingernail then is that better than just saying it's off of one person and just dealing with what happened
2: yeah I mean I think that a lot of times uh, you know getting calls right does does help and we probably take that for granted because that's what we're used to and if you did remove like a, a vast chunk of the replays, there would probably be more uh you know kind of obvious blown calls that would really bug us if they couldn't be uh, addressed but when we're stopping to look at like block charges and foul calls and uh, all these different things uh, to me it it's not what makes basketball best i think you know when when basketball is at its finest it's free flowing it's fast moving it's up and down it's you know a chess match of teams trying to pick on each other's mismatches and Uh, you know, take advantage of maybe whoever the weakest link on the court is. It's not standing around a monitor. It's not, you know, parsing the HD clips. It's not cutting to Sakakis. I mean, if I could give you the option to just never cut to Sakakis again in your life, would you take it? I mean, you probably would, right?
1: Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think you kind of have to, and maybe <laughs> maybe you do different rules for the playoffs because the playoffs are, you know, they're ostensibly more important for picking a champion, and because there there's less direct competition. You know, are never more than a couple of games on a given night. So maybe you can do something where you bring in more review then. I would be okay with that. It's not like it would be abrupt for coaches. They understand how this works. And the other thing, I don't want to dwell on this, but I just want to mention it as, as a great encapsulation of this is the Clear Path review because – they could go to a rule where intentional fouls stopping fast breaks are just penalized strongly enough that they don't occur anymore. And think about all of the ramifications that happen there. So under the current system, it's a foul which stops the game anyway, but then a lot of times it's a review. If it was... And the idea behind it, and this there's been discussion about the delay game warnings and all that is, the idea is that you create a penalty so that the delay never happens. And things like that could really help. And so... Uh, Abbott, you know, Abbott talking about pace of play. I think a lot of these things fit together. But we can move on to uh, to L.A. I, I think that from—I'll I'll make it a little bit of a broader point than what you did, and I agree with you, is that teams outside of that top tier— and so for for that purpose, I'll say Bucks, Clippers, Lakers, in no particular order— I think what teams outside of that group had to hope was two things. One, that they were better than people like me thought. And two, that some of those teams, considering two of the three, were— just constructed and the third of the Bucks lost an important player, that they weren't as good as we thought they could be. And I think one of the big takeaways for me is that even though none of them is perfect, all three of that what I consider the top group, all three of them look like championship contenders right now.
2: Yeah, no question. I think the one team that we maybe want to see more from would be the Clippers, just because of the way, you know, Paul George came back a little bit late. Kawhi Leonard maybe hasn't necessarily been on the absolute top of his form and he's missed a few games here and there. But yeah, I mean, you look at opening night and what they did to the Lakers, I think you have to put them in that conversation. And you also look at how well Paul George has played since he's been back healthy, and he's in that conversation for sure. I mean, I always want to give love to the Bucks because they're just naturally overlooked in all of this, You know, partially because they play maybe in the Eastern Conference, partially because of the small market thing. Partially because they don't have that, you know, second or third star, you know, alongside Giannis. But you know, Giannis has been just out of control good this year, as always. I think he's right back in that MVP conversation, right on schedule. They've been able to limit his minutes because they've been, you know, so dominant in so many of these games that, you know, a lot of times he's actually probably not getting as much credit as he should for how well he's taking care of business because his nights are done early. Um, so from that standpoint. I think there were some questions for Milwaukee coming into the year. Will there be a hangover after kind of a dream run? Will the Brogdon loss screw with their mentality of like, hey, wait a minute, why did we not get to keep one of our core guys when we're trying to be you know, championship contenders? Would, you know, the pressure, the future pressure of Giannis and his next decision hang over this organization? Would some of the veterans they paid this summer after their paydays just, you know, regress a little bit, you know, after their contract year? I mean, that that does happen. There were different reasons that you could want to nitpick Milwaukee. I don't really know what else is left. I mean, you can get after Giannis for his free throw shooting, for his three-point shooting, for, you know, maybe his offense won't quite work as well in the playoffs as it does against poor teams during the regular season. But otherwise, to me, they're pretty bulletproof.
1: Yeah, the the ones that I would be a little bit concerned about, the offensive breakdown, that they don't have enough dynamic creators outside of Giannis, I'm still a little bit concerned about that. The other one is the Bucks' scheme is designed to give up a lot of threes, and just like the best opponents have a, a more wing defenders, that's something I've been critical about certain team schemes for, best teams often have more good three-point shooters. And so that if you're giving those up to better teams, that can be a problem. But I think a way of putting this, uh, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, is this is going to be praise of two different teams. When the Lakers have had LeBron on the floor, as of right now, They've outscored teams by 11.5 points per 100 possessions using cleaning the glasses filter. That's incredible. Like, 11.5 is dominant. That's a spectacular rate. The Bucks for the whole season, when Giannis <laughs> is playing, when he's sitting, they're plus 12.1.
2: And I know, man.
1: That's, that's it's, what I'm it's, saying. Incredible. Like, it's, it's, there, there was this old thing about, you know, like teams that have like, in I think of this with baseball where they had like a really bad, they had a really bad hitter. And so it was, like, oh, they make every pitcher look like Ray Halliday. It's kind of the opposite. Like the Bucks are like if LeBron could play all 48 minutes to an extent.
2: Yeah. I mean, the Bucks are also a great example of kind of how poisoned our mind has become as, you know, NBA fans, because, uh, they're so good that I think people almost view it as boring, right? It's like, oh, it's the system. Oh, there goes Giannis. Right. And, how many and, times can we watch and him? And think it's like... about
1: how recent that is. Like, it, it's it's not even like, oh, the Spurs where they've been good forever, and and Pop is doing great things and everything like that. A year and a half ago, they've they had. I mean, Br- Prunty a year and a half ago was their coach, but like, you know, you can you keep going know, where we're talking about. Like they, yeah. they were, they only figured it out like a year ago. Right now, we're like, well, they're looking really good, but we don't really know. It's not even old hat yet. It's just so well established that we're we've just normalized to it. It's kind of like when you when you're somewhere for a long enough period that you completely acclimate to the weather, but it's not where you actually live.
2: For sure. And let's not forget there was like twenty years of rough times for that franchise too, right? Where there was like you know moments they're not even being discussed or not even on the radar. So for their fan base, this is like the greatest uh, you know, greatest stretch that they're ever going to remember. Uh Giannis is the best player they've ever, ever got to enjoy. And so I kind of feel like as the national media or at least people you know, outside Milwaukee, we should kind of adopt that mentality, right? Like, don't take these guys for granted. They play a fun, exciting style. They play hard on defense. Giannis is is really going after it on the defensive end, too. His individual defensive numbers are incredible. And that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, you're describing their point differential. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it. You know, he brings it night after night. I think he's got that, you know, Jordan killer instinct. Uh, which helps him lead by example, sets the tone for them and and delivers some of the consistency factor that we're looking for. And rather than the hangover concern that I described earlier, they've come out kind of like a team on a mission, right? It's like, look, we got knocked out in embarrassing fashion in the Eastern Conference Finals, but we were up 2-0 in that series. We smoked through the first two rounds of the playoffs. There's nobody else who can match up with Giannis in the entire conference. And on top of all that, the one guy who really gave him problems is now in the Western Conference in Kawhi Leonard, right? So this this path is wide open for them. I love that they're taking full advantage of it. I do think it it just needs to be said, look, they're boring. You know, they're bad quotes. Giannis is not a good quote. Coach Bud is intentionally a bad quote. He admits it. All of their, you know, supporting cast guys are pretty boring (laughs) in front of the microphone. So I think that's part of it, but as basketball fans, you know, people who really, you know, passionately follow this sport, don't worry about the headlines. Just watch what they're doing on the court cuz it is beautiful.
1: In a way it reminds me of the advice that when I did radio spots in the Bay Area in the 15-16 season for the Warriors, I said, you know, during the regular season, not knowing what was coming, said, appreciate this for what it is. Because even if it isn't isn't everything—that was the 73-9 year, I should put that context in—even if it doesn't end up being everything you dreamed it would be, this is still something special. And I think that's the same advice that I would give to Bucks fans is, I don't know if they're going to win a championship. I don't know if Giannis is going to be on their team beyond next season. I, that's that's part of the fun of sports is that as much as we think we know, it's not definite. But what I do know is that they are an incredible team right now. They are fun to watch night in, night out. They are do, playing an engaging style, and the way that they use Brooke Lopez, and they have, you know, now they're integrating young guys like DiVincenzo, who played a lot when Chris Middleton was out. And. You know, you, you just do that. And I think a great example of that is I, from the limited amount, and Twitter is not representative or anything else I talked about with J.E. Skeets when he was on. I think that Raptors fans have kind of done this. And then it's, what's fun is they have another interesting team this year. I don't think they're going to win a championship again, but kind of be in, in understanding that it's. Every season is its own adventure, its own journey, and hopefully, not for every team, but hopefully that team can have something worth latching onto and really really relishing. And the Bucks have that in spades, and the Raptors have it a lot, too.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think Pascal, you know, unlike the all Golliver team, I think he's top five at this point, you know, in terms of guys that, you know, I like watching everything that he's about. Whenever there's these players who make steady progress year after year after year, and like you could actually be in the conversation to win most improved player multiple times. And that was a Giannis hallmark for years. And Pascal, uh, you know, although he's not Giannis, has done the same thing these last couple of years. Um, the leadership stuff is what I didn't necessarily anticipate from him. I just think it helps that their culture is really strong up there, and in terms of how they select personalities, it's you know not a lot of nonsense in that Raptors locker room, right? And, and the guys who maybe aren't bringing it get called out by Coach Nick Nurse early in the season and basically let them know, hey, here's what the expectations are. So I do think that makes it a little bit easier for Pascal to lead. It's not like he has to, you know, keep all these knuckleheads in line. But, uh, you know, from that standpoint, he's an incredible story. Van Vliet's been a great story. You know, they're now in position to me where, you know, I agree they're not quite a contender, but they could have some fun at the deadline if they wanted to and make things interesting. Um, and certainly uh, they have a nice foundational piece you know, for the long term. So, uh, you know, I understand why Kawhi wanted to come to the Clippers. I think his his short term best interest was to, you know, come home to Los Angeles, play with Paul George, compete for a title. But I do think if you zoom out maybe for a longer four or five year window, you can make a pretty good argument that he would have had, you know, more opportunities to win a greater number of titles had he stayed in Toronto than coming home to Los Angeles. And look, it sounds like he didn't want to do that. Uh, But if you're removing zip code and and weather and those kinds of conditions, uh, that says a lot about the, the base of talent that Toronto has.
1: It does. And I was so impressed with the way their team handled Lowry and Ibaka being out for extended periods of time. Van Vliet stepped up in a way that I didn't know he was capable of. And then also having Siakam capable of shouldering the playmaking load this year. You know, it, it, it is interesting and exciting for me when those developments all pull the same direction at the same time. So, I mean, Siakam well, couldn't have done what he was doing a couple years ago, but now when they need that from him, he can do it.
2: I mean, how about this? We always focus on the Kawhi Leonard trade of the part that they got to enjoy, which was the title, the finals MVP, the incredible buzzer beater, his leadership, him rubbing off on Siakam and and kind of showing him how to do it. Like that is an overwhelmingly positive package. But on top of that, they dodged the DeMar DeRozan decline, didn't they? And
1: and not only that, they (laughs) didn't have to give up their best prospect in the trade. I mean I right. like I like Jakob Pertl, but imagine trading for even if he's on an expiring contract, trading for one healthy, a top five player in the league in the eventual finals MVP, and not giving up your best young player. It, it it was it was pretty amazing that happened, and I mean, think about what Siakam could be doing transforming the Spurs right now.
2: Well, I no question about it. I'm sure that the Spurs guys kicked themselves that, that negotiation, you know, went as poorly as it did for them you know, on a basically a daily basis, but don't overlook the DeMar factor. I mean, look, oh, of like San Antonio is in the situation where it's like, do they trade him? Do they give him away? Do they have, you know, how ugly does do, that do trade package look? Do they extend him?
1: Like all, all those sorts of things. Remember, remember there yeah. were those discussions before the season started about, they were extending him and I was going crazy. I'm like, you need to know what you have.
2: Yeah, no, you don't, you don't want to do that. I mean, to me, the next version of the Spurs that's good, you know, absolutely does not include DeMar and I think they've got to do whatever they can to trade him. Uh, But the defensive stuff has been really rough for him. The efficiency issues that were always there have been really tough. And if you were Toronto, that could have paralyzed you, right? It could have put you into a situation where you felt like you had to sell off Lowry. You you felt like you have to trade uh, DeMar DeRozan no matter what. I mean, not only would you have never won the title if you hadn't done that trade, I think you would have been in a much different position building-wise. And he probably stands in front of Siakam's development, too, just because of how ball-dominant he is as a player and how he crunches the court uh, with his lack of spacing. So, like, it's just one more feather for Masai Ujiri's incredible cap, right? Just, like, put that one on top. is like, hey, you really won that trade every every which way.
1: Plenty more to talk about with Ben Goliver, but first a message from betonline.com. .ag we are getting into week 15 of the NFL season. First of all, best of luck to those of you in fantasy playoffs, but also great time if especially if you're engaging with games in your fantasy playoffs to check out betonline.ag. A strong slate this week including Rams Cowboys, Colts Saints on Monday night and Bears Packers which I often find really really fun. And whether you're going to watch the game anyway or you want and you want to make it more interesting or you think you know where things are going. Obviously the NBA slate is going strong as well, so you can Go to betonline.ig. You can bet many things pregame. They also have some in-game wagering, which is pretty fun, too. But whichever way you do it, use that podcast1 promo code, which tells them that you came from us which is great and it gives you a 50% sign-up bonus which is fantastic so whether you want to do in-game pre-game whatever whatever sport you're into you can find it on betonline.ag and make sure that if you do you use that podcast one promo code to show sport and to get that 50% sign-up bonus betonline.ag your online sportsbook experts
0: angie's list is now angie your home for everything home. With Angie, you could cross your next project off your to-do list before this ad is even over. Just tell them what you need and they'll handle the rest. Sending a top pro to get it done or browse reviews, compare quotes from pros and connect instantly all for free for everything from routine maintenance to a dream remodel. Because however you want your project done, they'll get it done. Download the app or go to Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com to get started. A healthy lifestyle depends on quality sleep, and Sleep Number is here to help you sleep more efficiently. Sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health. Here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible. Reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late-night alcohol. Get regular exercise during the day, which helps you feel tired in the evening. And keep track of your sleep health with data from your Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Sleepers who routinely use their Sleep Number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year. With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time. Volunteer at a meaningful charity or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate Sleep Number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast1. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast1 for details.
1: I, I would say the other big picture thing for me is I was wondering which of the not yet established younger teams would move into a different level. So, I mean, one that happened in the early going was that the Suns were way more competitive than I thought. And I think they'll get back to that once they get healthier again. Missing Baines and Rubio, especially at the same time, was tough for them. But the big one that's happened so far, even if, let's say, the 15-6 and six record isn't quite the same, but... Dallas has been awesome, and their offense is maybe not this legit, but pretty damn great. And if their defense can be passable, then they move into the conversation of being a I, -- I would say if they can be a top five offense and a 13 to18 defense, that's a reliable playoff team in the West.
2: Well, first of all, my favorite thing about the Phoenix Suns is that everyone wrings their hands about the Aaron Baines injury, and nobody even cares about DeAndre Ayton's suspension. <laughs> it's just well, like, I, I think, oh, I
1: they, think, they I need think well, the funny thing and... is they played so well after Ayton was suspended, and then they didn't play well after Baines got hurt. So it's kind of like no, you know, I know, but but you're no, right. I,
2: no, it's accurate. I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that that's for sure. They're going to have a choice here when when Ayton's back and Baines is back. Of like, okay, like how much leash do you give uh, Ayton just because he's the number one pick? If you play so well with Baines when he's, you know, spacing the court and doing all the little things, setting screens for Booker and all that stuff, it's just hilarious that you could pick up a guy off the trash heap. And, you know, this summer, I mean, no one talks about the Baines edition. And then your number one pick who you selected over Luca and Trey Young is this guy who's just like completely disregarded, you know, two months into the season because of his poor decision off the court. To me, it's just a hilarious situation for (laughs) kind of a cursed franchise to find itself in. Uh, your point on Dallas, Luca is just ridiculous. I mean, he probably is the biggest single story of the season in terms of players. I mean, LeBron definitely, I think is always going to be a huge story. His resurgence is a big story, but Luca going from a very promising rookie who had efficiency issues and needed to lose weight and, you know, was still kind of finding his way to basically like top 10 level uh, playmaker leader of the NBA's number one offense leader of a consistently winning team, despite, you know, not really having a true number two star, you know, as Porzingis kind of continues to find himself, it's absolutely out of control. It's one of those situations where all the people who hyped up Luca before the draft probably are guilty of not hyping him up enough. Right. And we had to hear for two years about how people were saying, Oh, you know, he's, he's not going to be as good as some people are saying, like, Uh, You know, they're getting ahead of themselves. It's not going to translate from Europe to the NBA. Like, I didn't totally believe in that skepticism, but I always, you know, think it's good to be measured, not judge players by their best day or their worst day. But the consistency standard from Luca has been absolutely out of control this year. Um, I mean, I I think, you know, it's getting to the point where, like, you don't even blink if he puts up a 30-point triple-double. You know, that is not something I would have expected two years ago whatsoever. I, I love the fact that he committed to himself over the summer, to get the body right and, and to do the important things to to reach his full potential uh, because when you have that much natural talent, when you can you know toss these soft touch lobs and cross court lasers and step back and hit the three pointer and not be afraid to go head to head against LeBron James and these other premier players. Uh, you know, you need to give yourself the best possible chance from a physical standpoint uh, to reach your potential. And he's done that.
1: Right. And, and Luca, it was part of the reason I think it was a tough, a tough sell job is that it wasn't necessarily clear that even though he was the most accomplished, I think there's a good argument that he was the most accomplished teenager in men's basketball history. I, I think there's a fair argument considering his Euro League MVP and everything else. And remember that the Euro League is better than than everybody else. Uh, so we're we're talking pre-NBA because I guess LeBron was in the NBA as a teenager, a few other guys. and But even with that, and I believed all that, and I, I watched a lot of the film, because Luca doesn't have that insane athleticism and it is a lot on on feel and instincts and skill that it wasn't entirely clear that it was going to to go the way it did but it has and the reason why I think Luka is the number one story in the league right now is similar to Giannis last year which is one of the most important distinctions that happens in the league is which players are good enough to win an MVP which players are good enough to be the best player on a championship team and any time a player works his way legitimately into either of those conversations, much less both in the same year, it is a landscape changer for the entire NBA because it affects the way we think about teams. It affects the way players think about where they're going in free agency. And it doesn't happen for everybody who makes it to that rarefied It doesn't happen at the same time in their career. It doesn't happen on the same timeline. And I don't want to use a month, a month plus to say that Luca's there necessarily, but this is a really strong case to be there. And I mean, I wondered about that before Giannis came out. It was, you know, like in the last five years, who's been drafted who's going to be one of the three best players in the league? And then Giannis all of a sudden is like, boom, well, obviously he's there. Now we think he's going to be there for five, 10 years. Now Luca is working his way. And if he's this this guy at the end of the year, then he's in that conversation too, and that's huge for the league.
2: Well, do it this way: if you're going to draft, you know, any player in the league for, the, and you could have them for the next, you know, seven to ten years, your top two picks are Giannis and Luca, right? Absolutely,
1: yeah. Though, Nate and I had a, uh, a discussion because we've been doing this all decade content on Dunk Don. He said that Luca would be his current prediction if it had to be a player who's already in the NBA for player of the next decade. So meaning 2020 to 2030. I I still might think Giannis, just because Giannis has proven it more than Luca at this point, he's still super young. Like Giannis could be the, he could be MVP caliber for like the next six years and nobody would bat an eye. And those types of players are really rare, especially with, as we talked about earlier, his defensive impact. But Luca is a month and a half into being that type of player as well. And so, yeah, I would say those guys are one, two in either order, depending on how much you value their specific strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, neither of them is a perfect player by any stretch. I mean, we saw Giannis get shut down a little bit more in the playoffs and Luca has, hasn't done it for long enough yet, or in that pressure cooker in the NBA level, he obviously has it every other level that exists, but that is, it's such a remarkable accomplishment. And there is this dynamic. Uh, It it happens. I mean, it, I've talked about it in the context of the Warriors before it came up when I wrote my book on them, that, hindsight makes things seem more inevitable than they actually were. And I feel like that's going to happen with Luca inside the next three years, is the idea like, why didn't everybody see this coming? Look at it, he's the most accomplished teenager ever to enter the NBA. Why didn't it happen? But we need to remember that- part of what makes this fun is that while there were lots of reasons to think that he would, it wasn't a certainty. He's just knocking it out of the park.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's gotten a lot better to me. He should win most improved player. I mean, I think that's a big part of it too. Like as good as he was at 19, there is, you know, no 19 year old player is going to be really ready in the modern NBA to be uh, a top 10 level guy. If he doesn't take major step for, you know, steps forward over the next couple of years. And so I I think that, that speaks to your inevitability argument. If he was the same guy he was when he was 19 and he was having his level of success, okay. But he's taking huge steps forward. I mean, it is a kind of a crazy reminder that Giannis versus Luca debate you're describing that Giannis is only 24. I mean, that is pretty wild given how long he's been now, you know, going into his second season of MVP caliber play. Uh, it also raises the question of, like, how do you think he ages, like, towards the end of next decade, right? Like, d- is there a situation where he kind of, like, becomes a big, you know? Like, he almost, like, goes towards, like, almost a center. He maybe de-emphasizes his ball handling and playmaking as he gets older and into his 30s. And now he's more of a defensive-minded guy who, you know, is maybe a complementary scorer. Like, how do you think Giannis will age? Like, I'm saying out of his prime, right? Post-prime.
1: Years and years ago, I th- I thought of the, I, I said the idea, as, as many people did, I was not an originator of this, that when LeBron aged, he would become something like Karl Malone, basically because he was <laughs> built the same way. First of all, LeBron hasn't because he's a cyborg. And that yeah. that's absolutely
2: incredible. We're you, still waiting for the Carl Malone phase. Yeah, I mean, we're still waiting. Like that's
1: going to be in that's gonna, well, that might tie in with our our next topic after that <laughs> of, of when that's going to happen. But yeah. the uh, but with Giannis, I think his end game. So let's let's say if he wants to play this long, mid thirties, maybe early to mid thirties, thirty three to thirty six, is as a straight five, as a pure center. And he has all of those goods already as a rim protector. You know, he'll lose some of the lateral mobility that has made him both a rim protector and a, a, like a, a more versatile defender than that. But no, I think he defensively, he can be a straight five. And offensively, I mean, we're already seeing big men get empowered to have the ball in their hands more. I think he just becomes the same, uh, uh, like, maybe a reduced r- usage offensive player, but kind of along those lines. And who knows? I, I mean, if he, I'm not going to write off Giannis, by that point, you know another seven to eight years of development. The biggest thing he needs to add is a jump shot, and maybe instead of be getting a more versatile jumper, which would of course change everything, and then he if if he gets a versatile jumper, he's winning four of the next six MVPs. But maybe instead, he ends up going to like a Marcus set shot three or something more like what his current teammate Brooke Lopez does, and if he can get that shot at 35% and maybe maybe the spillover of that would also be he'd get a little bit better at the free throw line, then you have an amazing player too.
2: Yeah, I, I, we're all really aligned on this one. I think the defensive five is definitely kind of the, the foundation. You could also see a situation where as he gets a little bit older, does he just become like the dive guy on a pick and roll, right? Where like he does, he's not the main ball handler because, you know, that well,
1: Or that you can run the sort of modern stuff where you can have either guy initiate. Where he, you know, like maybe it's him and a two guard or a point guard, and they can't switch it because you can't switch that. Or, like, and I can imagine Giannis if he gets a little bit. I mean, it's scary to think if he gets bigger. But if he gets bigger, he could set better screens. All those. I mean, I, I think the possibilities are are basically endless for a player who has the base that he does, and this is part of the reason why. I am such an ardent supporter of teaching basically every guy who's good enough to potentially play in the NBA how to dribble and, like, make basic decisions because it's – I mean, how do you deal with that? It's kind of like the idea of if Joel Embiid were better at dribbling and making decisions, how nasty he would be.
2: Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, I think especially as we go forward and start to think about, like, what does the NBA look like in 2025 or 2030? I mean, I think it does – it comes back to, like, which players – Can shoot, which players can handle, which players can play make, and then who can defend the most positions, right? Like you want the most complete players, you want the most interchangeable players. Uh, I think obviously, you know, length and physicality is always going to be important too. But you know, those basic skills are going to sort of carry the game, I think, through its next, uh, you know, through its next kind of evolution. Uh, Man, like the the prospect of Giannis, actually, he does seem like he's going to age pretty well. Now that we've talked this through, I think some people might assume, oh, if he can't shoot now, that could mean that he kind of goes to Russell. Westbrook route, and you know he has like a, a sharper cliff. Uh, but I think with his energy, with his defensive impact, and versatility, and then just his sheer length, uh, he should you know really be able to to hang out through basically the entire twenty twenties.
1: I would think so. And Giannis could be a, a notable test case for something that I've been pondering in the back in mind. I'm just going to leave this as an idea floating in the ether for now. Which is as we start to have the capacity to have whoever is the best creator on the team, regardless of size, run the show. You know, Carl Anthony Towns getting more of a role in Minnesota is a good example of this. Harden and LeBron are not point guard sized. You, You can go all over the league. I wonder how that's going to affect... The way that teams choose two other things. One is point guard size players, you know, so like could, because ball handling in certain cases becomes less important for them. Shot creation, though, having secondary and tertiary ball handlers is, you know, it's always better to have than not to have, unless it's a, a guy who has to, you know, a Ben Simmons type of type. Then the other thing is, how does this end up working in the long term ecosystem for players who are genuinely good at that, but are not the best player in their lineup? So. I've criticized Jason Tatum before for, I think he's a wonderful offensive player, but I think that a Jason Tatum led offense isn't going to be, you know, amazing. And to me, that's not a huge criticism of Jason Tatum. It's just, that's where the league is. But what I've been thinking about at first, I, you know, there was that idea that more competition is going to make it harder for those type of guys or, you know, Bradley Beale's proven it more over the years, but you know, there, there is that class both in starting and backups. But then the, the second counter to that is maybe the way this changes is, especially with how shooting is being taught. That sometimes it becomes a little more decentralized, especially on teams that don't have a Luca, a LeBron, and so then you're maybe you're initiating with Jason Tatum thirty percent of the time, you're initiating with the point guard thirty percent of the time, the center twenty percent of the time. Like this could get even crazier than it is right
2: now. Yeah, man, I hear you, and I think that you know when we we're talking about this conversation earlier of like how do you spur interest, how do you keep people involved. That's a part of it, too. Right. Style of play and, uh, you know, strategic uh, developments. And so I think if we get to that world where basically everyone can initiate, basically everyone can do all the important things on offense and you get to watch, you know, lots of switching defensively and lots of interesting kind of chess match type of play. I think that's uh, the most healthy version of the NBA that we can get. Obviously, you know, speed uh, is another you know key aspect. And I think that comes with guys who are skilled, too. It's, it's easier to play fast if you're skilled. Um, and so hopefully, uh, you know, we continue to evolve this way. I think it's also important as we get close to 2020, should we take a moment to pause and reflect on what the NBA looked like in 2010? Right. I mean, we've come a long way in a decade and really even a long way since like 2014, which is probably when a lot of people are going to look at or 2015 as kind of the the major turning point with the rise of Steph Curry and the three-pointers and and the Rockets really uh, fully exploring their style of play. I think, personally, from a basketball standpoint, a pure aesthetic standpoint, the game now, I would rate at, like, you know, without the rules and all that, but just, like, the style of play, I would rate as an A. And I think if we go back 10 years... Yeah, it's, it's something more like a C plus B minus.
1: That's a great piece of perspective. And I mean, it is amazing how much the league has changed since then that was right around when I started covering the league. And I mean, also the, uh, the things that were maybe in their early stages then that have become prevalent now. And then you think about how that's going to be, you know, moving forward the teams that are on the, on the front edge now that the things they're doing well, that stick, those are going to be commonplace. I mean, it doesn't even take that long. So yeah, it, it is really exciting, and that discussion about the future, I think, leads us into another topic that you wanted to, to discuss, which is you've been, over the last little while, it, I don't know if embedding is the right word, but you've been doing work on a feature on somebody who may, and let's say hopefully will be a part of the next stage, which is the uh, – it's it's it, uh, Canyon, but I'm, what was, what's the precursor word there?
2: Yeah, Sierra Canyon. Sierra Canyon. Uh, High School. I was going to say yep. Sierra,
1: but I'm like they're not close to the Sierras. <laughs> why, why why, are you doing the Sierra Canyon? But Sierra Canyon, LeBron James Jr., Zaire Wade, and also just a really good other group of players.
2: Yeah, so the team is like a super team, right? They basically took the Miami Heat, you know, Heatles model and said, let's try to put that into high school basketball. So you've got, you know, Dwayne Wade's son. You've got LeBron's son. You've got two top ten picks or I guess uh, top 10 ranked uh, prospects who are seniors this year, all in the same group. Um, What's fascinating to me about this story, though, Danny, is like we all remember, or at least people our age do, when LeBron was coming up as a high school prospect. And you remember he kept getting into controversies where it's like, no, you can't take throwback jerseys uh, as gifts because you're an amateur player, right? You can't have your mom or you shouldn't have your mom take out a loan on your future income to buy you a Hummer. For your 18th birthday and LeBron got suspended and you know he, he eventually got reinstated and won three state titles at St. Vincent, St. Mary, which was a private Catholic high school uh, in Akron. Right. So he had, uh, I think, what I would consider sort of an up and down experience. I mean, it was so much attention, so much, uh, you know, media, you know, kind of blitz for him to deal with. But I think what we've seen in the last 20 years is really a professionalization of the high school space. Um, a lot of you know, the, the arms race stuff that's gone on in college sports has kind of trickled down to high school basketball. So you do get a situation where players can kind of be recruited across the country to the same school and kind of team up, just like an NBA team has done. And then I think what you've also got, frankly, is LeBron being in a position where he is you know, one of the country's wealthiest Uh, Most influential, most connected uh, and savviest, uh, you know, people, let alone athletes uh, that we've got. And so he now has this incredible advantage that he can bestow upon his son, Bronny, to put him in a position to kind of get ready for an NBA journey. Right. So rather than worrying about these, like, throwback jerseys and the Hummer and all of that, I mean, you've got Bronny being shuttled back and forth to school by, you know, a driver. Uh, You've got a team in Sierra Canyon going to China for a preseason team bonding trip. They're going to be traveling uh, to state after state after state for high-profile high school games this year from Minnesota uh, to Ohio uh, to Texas. Uh, The list goes on and on. And on top of that, they're going to be broadcast on either ESPN's... um, television stations or ESPN streaming service 15 times, which is basically a record unprecedented for any high school team. And this is as Bronny as a freshman, right? They've already played one game in Dallas, Texas, that, that drew more than 10,000 fans. Uh, they're going to be playing a lot of their home games at a local college, just so that the uh, the crowds can be accommodated. And Bronny is basically trending every single night, in part because LeBron is sharing his uh, clips on Twitter and Instagram Uh, you know, on basically a regular basis. Right. So I think the lesson that we've learned is like, you know, LeBron burst onto the national scene, you know, basically purely on his talent. Right. Like, I mean, he was just very clearly he was the next one. He was the chosen one. uh, And that's why we sort of found about uh, found out about him. And now what we're seeing with Bronny, who looks like he has a chance to be a a very, very good player um, and potentially an NBA player, he is bursting onto the scene in part because of celebrity, obviously a big part because of Uh, his connection to his father, but also what I view as kind of a very skillful, you know, social media marketing and media campaign from the family to make sure he's kind of like front and center stage on this high profile team that's really living Almost a professional uh, existence at this point.
1: The passage of time does provide a pretty amazing piece of context for for Bronny versus LeBron, because and, and I mean, as you brought up, the differences between not only the professional professionalization of the high school areas, but in the way the media has changed, the way streaming services—you know, like now it's ESPN doesn't have to just decide to put those games on ESPN one; they could put them on two, they could put them on the streaming services wherever it wants to go, and. Eyeballs will see them, you know, differing amounts, obviously, but also the idea that there was an element, and this is, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if this is how it was to blame on how it was reported or how the high schools dealt with it. But think about how the the challenges and the structure of LeBron's rise were related to his socioeconomic status. You know, like LeBron, child of a single mother, they didn't have a lot of money. And and so the thing like his loan, well, Bronny doesn't have to worry about that because his dad, his dad, as you said, is, is one of the most wealthy, powerful, connected people in the country, in the world even. And it is pretty amazing to see it happen in that way, and because they share a name and they share a lineage, you it, it provides that context in a way that is automatic and basically mandatory. Whereas if it was somebody else, let's say I don't know, if the 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 next Zion Williamson, somebody who whose parent is not the most prominent NBA player of the last decade it would be very different.
2: Oh, for sure. It's a huge advantage. Uh, You know, everything that I mentioned about LeBron's influence and his visibility and all that for Bronny, there's no question it's going to make his journey to the NBA easier than even a similarly skilled player. uh, No doubt about it. Just real quick about Sierra Canyon High School. I'm sure people are interested in like, what's up with this school? Uh, It was founded as a high school, not that long ago, like within the last 15 years, guys like Stevie Wonder and Will Smith were involved in the founding and you know they have family members and connections of going to this school. It's only 550 kids in the high school. Uh so it's not very large. They haven't really gotten serious about athletics until the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, but they have had some, you know, big investments in like a really nice gym and a nice baseball field and everything else. Uh, But I think the the real thing that sets it off is that they got this comfort with celebrity, right? I mean, they've had Kenyon Martin's son, Scottie Pippen's son, the Jenner sisters. uh, and, And I think that that is probably something that appealed to LeBron when he's trying to pick a home for Bronny is like, which school understands what our life is like, you know, where there's going to be cameras at every single one of his games following his every move. And to me, the even more fascinating part is some of those cameras are LeBron's cameras. You know, uninterrupted is actually doing a video video documentary of Bronny's season, which you know presumably they're going to be releasing that content publicly at some point, right? So not only is Bronny this incredibly hyped uh, child, uh, still at 15 years old, but LeBron is part of the hype man, right? Like he is probably the most prominent hype man. Uh, you know, putting Bronny on the map. So he's going to a high school that's, you know, just an incredibly uh, incredibly privileged environment, uh, you know, huge commitment to their sports programs in terms of how much they travel, uh, a wide open, you know, media deal where basically all of their games are televised somewhere, whether it's ESPN uh, or locally uh, in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, it's it's something that I think a lot of parents out there are probably thinking, like, man, this is too much too soon. Like, this is just way over the top. And I think the argument that the school officials use is, look, like, for these parents, this is what they demand and they expect. You know, their kids are good enough to, uh, you know, be on the Division I and NBA map as teenagers. And they, like any other parents, want the best for their kids. And, um, you know, all of this is now legal, you know, based on uh, California rules and, and this school's, you know, status as an independent school. So, uh they just have really, I guess over the last 20 years, ironed out a lot of the hiccups that LeBron had to deal with and have put, you know, players like Bronny or even Dwayne Wade's son uh in a much uh, you know, simpler situation for success, right? Uh and I mean the list goes on and on and in addition to that that China trip I mentioned they had a preseason media day, which was modeled after NBA media day. Uh, Sierra Kenyon has a head coach and six assistants. They break down scouting reports and video clips for the players before every game. I mean, they basically, like I said, you know, they, they aspire to be like Duke or Stanford as a college program, but they're really running things like an NBA team. You know, Before the game that I attended, they turned off the lights after the national anthem and had a pregame hype video, just like you would see at Staples Center. And it's hilarious because Todd Gurley, you know, star of the Los Angeles Rams, had his choice between going to see the Clippers play against Carmelo Anthony and the Blazers or going to see Bronny's home debut. And Todd Gurley was courtside watching Bronny's home debut. So it it just tells you uh, the power of the social media intrigue, uh, our interest in, I think, you know, children of very famous people and celebrities Uh, And also, you know, what money can buy you? You know, if you want to be, you know, a quote unquote pseudo professional basketball player at the age of 15, that is now possible in the United States.
1: And it will be fascinating and important to see how he plays on the court where, I mean, also for those other Canyon players who are getting huge eyeballs right now. And and even though they were going, they built the super team, which has a lot of really good players on it beyond the famous ones. And I think that's an, it will be an interesting part of the story and how that affects it. I mean, but, but they're getting more prominent. I'm guessing, you know, for social media and profile and everything else, they're getting a lot out of that. And I think uh,
2: Danny, can I, can I add just one thing real quick? I I shouldn't have jumped over this. Yeah. The descriptions of Bronny within this environment are that he is sort of like the rookie of the team that he Mm -hmm. says a lot of yes sirs and no sirs, that he's the hardworking kid, that the attention doesn't bother him, that he doesn't really seek it out. I think he's looked a little bit even nervous at times when he's played Ah, uh, but when I went to the game, what I was impressed by, first of all, he has the change of pace and feel stuff. Like you can see the genes trickling down there. He's not as physically imposing yet. I mean, I think he's like six two, and he's still, you know, he he still needs to fill out and grow quite a bit. I think you know, before we're going to be able to really judge him. But in transition. You know, he shifts gears a little bit like his dad. He's got a pretty good handle. He can dunk, you know, he throws down. I'm sure people have seen, you know, clips of that. Um, You know, he's tossing no-look passes. So the basics are there. But what impressed me the most, he didn't back talk to the officials. He's not slamming the basketball in frustration. He's not asking for calls. He worked hard on defense, moved his feet. They play a high-pressure style. He's trying to cover as much ground as he possibly can, covering for his teammates. You know, yes, there's going to be defensive breakdowns and mistakes, Uh, You know, given his age. Uh, But the intangibles is what really impressed me. And I think we've actually heard LeBron say about a guy like Zion Williamson in years past or about John Morant this year that he thought uh, those guys were about the right things. Like they had sort of their priority list as players and, you know, the right way to play. Uh, I think LeBron believes in that personally. And uh, he's expressed that about other young prospects. And I just saw those same characteristics in Bronny. And so I think that that probably more than anything else gives me hope, because in this situation, things can go wrong, given the hype and the attention so many different ways. Right. It would be so easy for it to go to his head or for him to, uh, you know, not take care of the little things and treat act like a star, treat himself like a star and that's not the player or the person that I saw.
1: That's great to hear. And it also bodes well for his potential viability as an NBA player, even if he's not like a star caliber athlete, you know, because need to be able to do those things, have the right mentality. Very few NBA players get to be the alpha and the omega the way that Bronny's dad has gotten to and has earned that right because he's the best player of the decade, one of the best players of all time. And that gets into what I think is another long-term but really compelling story here. I've been thinking about this for years now. I mean, basically since Bronny came onto the scene, which is if he is NBA caliber, even if it's as a potential role player, like a late first-round pick or second-round pick, my instinct is, especially given his savvy, LeBron, if he's still playing at that point, and I think he wants to, and I think he will, assuming his body cooperates, I think what he's going to do is set the most fun gauntlet that, that basically any player can, which is if you draft my son, I will play for you. And probably if Bronny's game with that. And what that does in, in a kind of an amazing genius way is if LeBron squares up his free agency, which I assume he will, is that it's going to lead to his son getting overdrafted. And that means more money and, and potentially like a greater commitment to him. And I think that would be absolutely fascinating.
2: I think it's absolutely possible. I've been on this bandwagon that they could be like Ken Griffey Sr. and Ken Griffey Jr. for years. The more that well, and I do- see And how-
1: doesn't it imagine—can't do- you imagine LeBron remembering that? Because, I mean, he and I are the same age. I think you're similar to us as well. That That was a really big thing in our sports lives, was seeing those oh. guys play together.
2: For sure. And I think for Braun, I mean, the one thing that LeBron has never talked about in depth about his life is his father. It's the one thing that he's always left out of his narrative, time and time again on the big profiles every single time. It's the one area he doesn't want to go to. And I think that what you're seeing from him personally, not to like psychoanalyze him, but he's all in as a dad. You know, I mean he's running after the games, the Lakers games, into the locker room so he can get on his phone and watch Bronny's highlights and all of his teammates know that's exactly what he's doing, so they're kind of like teasing him. You you know? So, I mean, he is completely all in. And I think the more that I see up close, how well this entire situation has kind of been manufactured or created to promote uh, Brawny, to put him in a position where he could be this high profile prospect and have more than 3 million instagram followers already uh at age 15 the more i think that you know basically no matter what he will be an nba player because lebron will make it happen and i think it's 2023 would be the draft that he's eligible at that point he could go uh you know preps to pro like he wouldn't have to take a year in college uh if they do the draft reform that everybody expects so it's actually not even that far off uh, and again Uh, Even if he's not an NBA caliber player, like how much are second round picks, you know, costing, right? Or how much is a late first round pick going to be paid? Uh, You know, that's a a fraction of your overall expenditures if it means you get to have LeBron or, or you get to keep LeBron happy. And so. I guess I'm in the mentality now. It's like almost whether or not he is an NBA caliber player, he will be an NBA player because LeBron has the influence and the power to make that happen.
1: Yeah, and I I think that it's the drumbeat on this story is only going to get louder, especially if, as it looks like right now, Bron's going to continue being a great player. You know, if he if he ages, <laughs> if he continues to be. A basketball cyborg and is is not just a, a good player, but a great player into his mid thirties. Then maybe in his later thirties, he takes a little bit of a step down. Maybe maybe by that point, he's carlone Malone. who knows? But it'll it'll be a a, a great example to me if if it co- comes to a head. Which my instinct is that it will. Of, you brought up the idea of how high, the high school is kind of a manifestation of all these long-term developments, and I think LeBron, because of the Heatles and everything else, was at the forefront of players really wielding their agency. And I think that it would be such a such a fitting conclusion to LeBron's NBA playing career for him to be to wield that in a completely new way that would transform the NBA. You know, maybe not permanently because we don't know how many how many guys are going to be able to. Play long enough to have the chance to play with their sons, much less be a huge box office draw. But I would love that to be, you know, like beyond all of his his exploits being basically one of the top two players in NBA history. I I think that would be such a great coda for all this to to have him say, "Well, I I, I want to play with my son, so I'm just going to make it happen, and everybody else can just deal with it."
2: Yeah, I think another way to put it is like this. I mean, LeBron is on the record saying that the greatest accomplishment of his life would be if he could play uh, share an NBA court with his son. Right. I mean, that's that's basically how he views it. Now, if we just step back from just take that statement alone and realize that LeBron's like on track to be basically be a billionaire, right? And he's probably the most influential professional athlete uh, in America right now. If that's what he wants. How many billionaires ever get denied what they want that passionately, right? Like if if Steve Ballmer can go out and just drop $2 billion because he wants to own an NBA team – What is really the difference between LeBron saying, "You know what? I will, you know, use every bit of my, uh, you know, uh, you know, pent up uh, brownie points as an athlete, as a celebrity, as an ambassador of the game, and everything else to make sure Bronny gets an opportunity to fulfill that goal for himself, but also for, uh, uh, you know, his father too." So that's why I just think like we need to be ready for this. Like basically, no matter what, as long as Bronny still has the passion for the game and wants to play. I'm not sure what's standing between him and uh, an NBA future.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Anything else that you want to share with listeners? I mean, we've gone through a lot already.
2: No, that's pretty much it, Danny. It was a great conversation. We always bounce around so many different topics. uh, And, uh, you know, it's it's great to chat with you. And hopefully I'll get to see you soon.
1: Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at the Washington Post, where he is a national NBA writer. You can follow him on the Post Up NBA newsletter. And you can listen to the Open 4 podcast. Of course, you can also follow him on Twitter, at Ben Golver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love having him on. And our conversation at the end about LeBron James Jr. and kind of fame and how everything has adjusted since his dad was a high school star, I, I thought it was really compelling. And I think that's going to be a flashpoint for a lot of people over the next few years. I mean, Bronny only being a freshman in high school, we still have a lot more of this. And it- it'll be interesting to see where it goes and, and how we... As basketball fans, as media members like I am, deal with that. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of ways you can do so. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not. And if you use something else, you can also leave a review both places there and Apple Podcasts, which would be awesome. Spread word, word of mouth, social media, whatever makes you happy. And subscribe, download every episode. That is particularly great for a show like Real GM Radio, which comes out whenever I really have the time. I think that's probably the best way of putting it. So you can't get into a rhythm with it. So if you subscribe, then it'll pop into your podcast player whenever a new one is out. And, of course, the most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to share that with me. Twitter can be so ephemeral, it's very hard. Uh, so you send it to the email. If it pops in there, I will read it. I try to respond when I can, but I, I definitely promise that I will read it and I will consider it. And that has happened a lot over the course of the years. I really do appreciate it, because it makes the show better. You actually will not hear my voice that much recently, as I mentioned in the intro. I'm actually in, in Europe as this is being released, so I'm not going to be Dunked on for the coming week. I'll be back later next week with a new Real GM Radio, and then dunked on I think we're starting flush with a 15 and 60 on on the following Sunday night, so that'll be exciting. And getting right back into it quickly, we're going to do an NBA cast on Christmas Day and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So you can look forward to that. Um, I don't know exactly what my writing capabilities are going to be during this, so keep an eye on it. Check my Twitter feed, and also just subscribe to The Athletic if you aren't already, and you can check that out. Um, you can I have an author page, and things will pop in there as they are published. That's all for now, so thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day we mm-hmm.
0: Whenever you look for news, you may feel forced to choose between partisans in mainstream media and conspiracists in alternative media. That's where The Lost Debate steps in. I'm Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who also once hosted a Fox News radio show. I'm Ricky Schlatt, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech.
1: And I'm Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and school principal who also fought alongside Republicans on charter schools. And we launched The Lost Debate, podcast and youtube show for the political eclectics who've lost trust in a polarizing partisan world but who also reject the disinformation and manipulation in alternative media
0: instead of being at each other's throats we focus on bringing new perspectives to the table and constructive debate that sounds less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people check out the lost debate on youtube or wherever you get your podcasts